Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. I wonder if you will first of all read uh, for us from, from the beginning, given that this is the first time you're talking yes. about this book. I think it would yes. be lovely for the audience to get a sense of it. But just before you do, let me just ask you about this idea of um, writing about those who are outsiders. And, and I find that particularly interesting in the context of your, your own life, which I'm sure we, we will talk a little bit more about. But, but tell me why that matters to you in this moment to write about the outsider, the, the, the person who doesn't themselves feel that they belong, and also that the society in which they live rejects them. I think this is a question that is very close to my heart for various reasons. And to me, it's amazing to see how the number of people who feel like strangers, even in their own homeland, even in their, in their own motherland, the number of such people is increasing, east and west. Many people, of course, they love their culture, where they come from, they embrace it. But at the same time, they find it puzzling, the politics, political shifts and changes. Sometimes they can't even recognize their own countries. And I've been speaking with many people from America, from the Philippines, from Venezuela, Russia. The, the list is so long, Turkey, Egypt, uh, and, and similar, very similar sentiments, Hungary, Poland, because the shifts are very massive. Uh, and while politics is quite dark and depressing, you also know the people and you like the people, you feel attached to the people. So it's a very fragmented feeling of being like an insider outsider. You're here, but not quite here. That's a feeling that I am very familiar with. And maybe that goes all the way back to my childhood. Part of the reason is because I was born in France, in Strasbourg. So um, that's how the journey started. But afterwards, my parents separated and my father stayed in France and my mother brought me to Turkey. So for my mother, Turkey was motherland. For me, it was a new country I had to discover. And we came to a very conservative, very patriarchal neighborhood. This was my maternal grandmother's neighborhood in the middle of Ankara. I grew up without seeing my father, and I was raised by two women, my mother and my grandmother, which was also a bit unusual. And I remember, uh, even at an early age, feeling a bit like on the edge, you know, like the other myself, for different reasons. Um, and, and I think that feeling never abandoned me. Overall, I think it's a, it's a very productive feeling for an, for an artist, for a writer, because you're close enough to understand, to feel connected, to love a culture, but perhaps distant enough, at least in your mind, the cognitive distance, to maybe see things from a, from a different angle, maybe through a critical distance. It is a lonely space, but it can be a good space for, for the art of the storytelling. But for the storyteller herself or himself, I think it's a very lonely space. So share with us the beginning of this particular story. <laughs> so, yeah, the story of Tequila Leila. And um, the novel begins I wish you could see, it says, the end. That's how it starts. <laughs> her name was Leila, Tequila Leila, as she was known to her friends and her clients. 
Tequila Leila, as she was called, at home and at work, in that rosewood-colored house on a cobblestone cul-de-sac down by the wharf, nestled between a church and a synagogue among lamp shops and kebab shops, the street that harbored the oldest licensed brothels in Istanbul. Still, if she were to hear you put it like that, she might take offense and playfully hurl a shoe, one of her high-heeled stilettos. Is, darling, not was, my name is Tequila Leila. Never in a thousand years would she agree to be spoken of in the past tense. The very thought of it would make her feel small and defeated, and the last thing she wanted in this world was to feel that way. No, she would insist on the present tense, even though she now realized with a sinking feeling that her heart had just stopped beating and her breathing had abruptly ceased and whichever way she looked at her situation, there was no denying that she was dead. None of her friends knew it yet. This early in the morning, they would be fast asleep, each trying to find the way out of their own labyrinth of dreams. Leila wished she were at home too, enveloped in the warmth of bed covers with her cat curled at her feet, purring in drowsy contentment. Her cat was stone deaf and black, except for a patch of snow on one paw. She had named him Mr. Chaplin, after Charlie Chaplin, for just like the heroes of early cinema, he lived in a silent world of his own. Tequila Leila would have given anything to be in her apartment now. Instead, she was here, somewhere on the outskirts of Istanbul, across from a dark, damp football field, inside a metal rubbish bin with rusty handles and flaking paint. It was a wheelie bin, at least four feet high and half as wide. Leila herself was five foot seven, plus the eight inches of her purple stilettos still on her feet. There was so much she wanted to know. In her mind, she kept replaying the last moments of her life, asking herself where things had gone wrong, a futile exercise since time could not be unraveled as though it were a ball of yarn. Her skin was already turning grayish-white, even though her cells were still abuzz with activity. She could not help but notice that there was a great deal happening inside her limbs. People always assumed that a corpse was no more alive than a fallen tree or a hollow stump devoid of consciousness, but given half a chance, Leila would have testified that, on the contrary, a corpse was brimming with life. She could not believe that her mortal existence was over and done with. Only the day before, she had crossed the neighborhood of Pera, her shadow gliding along streets named after military leaders and national heroes, streets named after men. Just that week, her laughter had echoed in the low-ceilinged taverns of Galata and Kurtulush and the small stuffy dens of Tophane, none of which ever appeared in travel guides or on tourist maps. The Istanbul that Leila had known was not the Istanbul that the Ministry of Tourism would have wanted foreigners to see. A 
a brilliant ending for, from my point of view because my next question is about the city of Istanbul. The dedication of this book is to the women of Istanbul um, and to the city itself, which is, you say, and has always been a she city. Um, I, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about what Istanbul means to you uh, and also what Turkey means to you now because you talk very movingly in the TED Talk of 2017, which I, I mentioned in the introduction, which I, I urge everyone to go and, and listen. Let's try and get it to three million uh, people uh, having seen it. It's really powerful when you talk about the taste of words mm -hmm. and how words have a particular taste and shape. And motherland is a word that you yeah. have already used uh, in, in, in speaking about belonging. I'm so intrigued by the relationship that you have with this country that is clearly your country, but also it's a deeply troubled country yeah. and it's troubling to you. Yeah, yeah. And I'm assuming it's a familiar people for, um, it's a, sorry, it's a familiar feeling for those of you uh, in the audience who might also come from troubled countries, right? Uh, and. That's a little bit difficult to talk about because it's a very mixed feeling. And that's why I wanted to express it through tastes in my TED talk. There's something very sweet on your tongue when you say motherland, when you pronounce it. But there's also something sour. And the sourness comes from the observation. It comes from seeing what's happening. It comes from seeing how countries can slide backwards. Until perhaps recently, many people assumed that history had always, would always move forward in a linear progress. Even though, of course, when we read history itself, we can see that's not the case at all. But again, many people, experts, analysts, that was their basic assumption. They had so much confidence in that basic assumption that they even thought, they expressed it as if some parts of the world were liquid countries, turbulent, not settled yet. And some other parts of the world were assumed to be solid countries, safe, steady. So human rights, women's rights, uh, maybe freedom of speech, they were necessary in those liquid parts of the world. But people in the West, many people assume that you didn't really have to fight for these things in Europe anymore because Europe was beyond that stage. And I think after the year 2016, that feeling has changed a lot. That dualistic way of seeing the world has changed a lot. So there's more and more of us who feel like we're living in liquid times and the world itself is quite, quite turbulent. My own connection with Istanbul, there's a, there's a poem actually by the Greek poet Kavafis that I like a lot. He talks about how you can abandon a city, but you can never really leave it behind because it will keep coming with you wherever you go. You know, the city will follow you wherever you are. And I think that's my relationship with Istanbul. I might not be physically there, but I feel like I carry it with me wherever I go. And it appears in, in so many of your novels. I mean, it, it, there's a kind of almost, an, uh, you pay homage to it in The Architect's Apprentice. Yeah. Uh, the Bastard of Istanbul is, uh, you know, the, the huge story, and it was the, the novel that really brought you um, enormous attention. I suppose my, the, what informs my question is, is exactly what you've, what you've started to outline, this, the, the, the dualities that don't exist anymore, force yeah. 
force writers to do what? What is it that you think writers can do to try and, and make people feel more, more certain in, in countries that are, are, are liquid and going through turbulence? Yes, I think it's, um, it's a tough question for writers, particularly for novelists, because most of us are introverts. You know, I'm an introvert, so I find it much easier to be alone in a space surrounded with books in an imaginary world. To come, except you're also a public intellectual. I, you know. I, I, I like. I know the, the word intellectual in this country is not a good word. It's fine in this room, <laughs> which is, I think. Which is, <laughs> which is quite interesting because if you go to France, it, it has a positive connotation. Even in Turkey, sure. you know, we are always angry at our intellectuals. There isn't proper freedom of speech, but there is a, there is an understanding that there's a room for being intellectual, same in Russia. So I find it very interesting that in the UK, if you say someone is an intellectual, it's, people think it's a sign of arrogance, but, but I think it's something Yeah, I'm not frightened of using the word. I think it's yeah. fine. We should feel completely yeah. okay about it. <laughs> Just because I think, you know, you, you, you think about things, and in the end, the only thing that an intellectual is is somebody who's interested in ideas. It's nothing more than that, right? Ideas, it's not absolutely, but also nuances, right? right? To try to bring back nuances. And, and the reason why I say it's not easy for novelists because to come into the public space and you don't, you, you don't have the answers yourself, but you find the questions important. Uh, for me, that's, that's crucial. But that aside, because I think at the end of the day, a novel's job is to ask questions rather than to preach or to teach. I don't like it when novelists try to teach anything. But just to be able to ask difficult questions about difficult issues, including taboos. Because of course, as writers, we're interested in stories, but we're also interested in silences, the things we can't talk about in a society. And in all my work, I think there's, a, there's an attempt, there's a desire to talk about taboos and just say, can we please have a free discussion about this? But that said, I think we need to take even a step further now because so much is at stake in the world today. And I really believe novelists, writers, poets need to speak up about core issues, about freedom of speech, human rights, minority rights, rule of law, uh, media freedom and, and separation of powers. You know, these are the sh things that make a democracy help a democracy to survive. I'm not talking about partisan politics. I'm not even talking about party politics. But we need to be more politically engaged in this age. Let, let's talk about some of the taboos that you've dealt with. I mentioned The Bastard of Istanbul, um, which is a novel um, about a family in Istanbul. But the, there, there is, at the heart of it, your insistence that Turkey confronts its past over the Armenian genocide of 1915. Um, and I use the word genocide with ease, but the Turks absolutely refused to accept that it was a genocide. Just tell us a little bit about the background to this story, because you were tried for a work of fiction. And, and, and the, the trial was under Article 301 of the Turkish Constitution, which is a, a very vague article because it, it talks about insults to Turkishness. So just tell us what happened to you after you'd written the book and it became very successful. Well, it was, it was a bit surreal, to be honest, because, uh, as you said, Article 301 protects Turkishness against insults, but nobody quite knows what that means, right? How do you draw the line? So it's very open to misinterpretation, and many journalists, academics, thinkers have been put on trial under th Article 301. 
but for the first time a work of fiction was treated in the same way and that was quite surreal so the words of fictional characters were plucked out of the text mostly the words of my Armenian fictional characters because this is the story of a Turkish family and an Armenian American family and the story is told through the eyes of women generations of women grandmothers mothers and granddaughters and to me it is a story that deals with amnesia and memory. And I think in Turkey, even though we have a very rich history, we are a society of collective amnesia. We have no recollection of the past. So I wanted to think about this. You know, is it, is it a good thing to remember too, past, too much? And is it a, or is it a good thing to forget too easily? Should there be a balance? And can we approach the past with a much more constructive approach? Can we learn from the past, not in order to be stuck in the past, but hopefully never again to make the same mistakes, never ever again to repeat the same horrors, you know? So to me, these were the essential questions. And after the book was published, uh, I was put on trial. My Turkish lawyer had to defend my Armenian fictional characters in the courtroom. And that was quite, quite surreal. But there were also groups, ultranationalist groups on the streets, you know, spitting at my pictures, burning my pictures next to EU flags because in their eyes I was the pawn of Western powers. So they associated those two pictures. And, and those things stayed with me. That was quite unsettling. It went on for a year. And then for a year and a half, I had to live with a bodyguard. That was also... Um, very difficult for me to understand. But if I only mentioned the dark side, I wouldn't be do doing justice because there was also a bright side and the bright side came from the readers. The book was widely read, word of mouth, because at the time I was attacked constantly all over Turkish media. You know, so many columnists accusing me of being a traitor, betraying my country. Despite that toxic language, readers, like true literature lovers, they bought the book. If they like a book, they pass it on, you know? And that is amazing. And so it taught me, it was a big lesson for me. It made me understand in countries where there isn't proper freedom of speech, if books survive, if the publishing industry survives, we really owe it to readers people who genuinely love stories, people who genuinely love books. Because in countries like Turkey, Pakistan, India, a book is not a personal item. If you like it, you share it, you know, you give it to your best friend and your best friend gives it to her mother and the mother sends it to her niece. So people would come to me and I would see these different sentences lined by different colored pens because different people have read the same book. And that is what helps us writers in our own work. Otherwise, it can be quite depressing. At some point, I thought being a novelist in Turkey is a bit like being slapped on one cheek and being kissed on the other cheek at the same time. <laughs> so it's a bit, you know, schizophrenic because you are constantly attacked by the elite, by the cultural elite, the media, and at the same time, the readers genuinely you know, come, say beautiful things, they cook for you, they make bracelets for you, and that is incredibly heartwarming and, and very precious. 
I don't know if you remember, Elif and I did an event in Istanbul in 2014, yeah. and from the British embassy, we walked to a restaurant, and she must have been stopped several times um, just by people coming up and wanting to say hello and wanting to congratulate her on her work. And at the restaurant also, yeah. waitresses came up, particularly women. Yeah. And, and I'm interested in, in your relationship with female readers of your book. I mean, you, you, you talked about the, the Bastard of Istanbul as being from the perspective of women only. There are men, male characters in the book, but this perspective that you are insistent and determined to, to project, does it, do you think, come not f just from the fact that you're a woman and you want to put those perspectives forward, but does it go back, do you think, to your childhood and being brought up by a single mother yeah. A, a, a you know secular, highly educated diplomat uh, spoke several languages, as do you, and uh, a, a spiritual Eastern, uneducated maternal sure. grandmother. Absolutely, they were very different women. My grandmother and my mother. Um, but they were both very strong, independent, and I think what stayed with me was the solidarity between them. You know, even though they their worldviews were very different, they supported each other. And kudos to my grandmother, my uneducated grandmother, who supported, because by the time my mother had returned to Turkey, uh, because she had dropped out of university, thinking love would be enough for her, she, by the time she came back with me, she had no diploma, no money, no degree, nothing to fall back on. And I remember people immediately looking for suitable husbands for her, because a young woman, a young divorcee is regarded as a threat. For a, for a community. And it was my, my maternal grandmother who intervened and said, no, you should go back to university. You should have a diploma, a career, choices. You can always get remarried if you want to, but then it will be a choice. It won't be an obligation. And when people said, yeah, but she can't do it. She has a child to take care of. My grandmother said, no, I'll raise her until the day her mother is ready. So until the age I was 10, I was raised by my grandmother, whom actually from time to time I called Anne, which means mother in Turkish, and my own mother I sometimes called Abla, which means big sister, even though I knew who was who. So it was, it was a bit un, un, unusual, and of course those things left an impact on me. Maybe that's why in The Three Daughters of Eve, one of the questions that I wanted to raise was, because there are three young women in that book, jokingly they call themselves the sinner, the believer, and the confused. Their relationship with their identity, with their religion, with their background is completely different. They all come from Muslim backgrounds, but one of them is very critical of religions in general, but in particular of Islam, because of the lack of gender equality across the Muslim world in practice. The other one is a believer. She wears also a hijab and she complains about Islamophobia because she experiences it a lot. And Peri, the Turkish girl, has lots of questions about lots of things. But the reason I'm sharing this with you, I wanted to ask this question. They might call themselves the sinner, the believer, and the confused, but can they be friends? Can they be sisters? Can there be solidarity among women from very different backgrounds? And we are yet to see this in Turkey or across the Middle East. Because when politics is so divisive in a country, women are also very badly divided. And I think the only thing that benefits from this is patriarchy itself. 
I know I'm diverting a little no, bit. No, 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 it's all relevant. Yeah. I, I'm really interested in the answer because one of the things that you deal with in, um, in that novel is, is about reclaiming faith for yeah. the secular world, if you like, yeah. that, that, that faith isn't just about religion. Yes. Uh, and, and in a way, that goes to the heart of, of, of what, everything that you've said so far, this idea that somehow we need to rebuild civil society in every country. It's in, not just about those countries where it's easy for people in the West to say, well, you know, Turkey puts more journalists in jail than any other country. You know, Erdogan is presenting himself as a, as a demagogue, even though he pretends he's a Democrat, etc., etc. And it, it feels to me that you are absolutely sitting in the center of the, the most potent battles that are taking place, not just in Turkey, but in the world. I think it's very crucial to do two things simultaneously. We can and we must be critical of authoritarian regimes and politics and politicians. But while we are doing that, do not isolate the people. You know, and the irony, the sad irony um, of many places is people in those places can be ahead of their governments. The civil society in Turkey is incredibly multi-layered, complex. There are so many people there, women, students, young people, minorities. You know, when you talk to them, it is incredibly beautiful to see their resilience, how they, they exist. And many, many of these people see themselves as global souls. So they're also there. The fact that we don't hear their voices doesn't mean they're not there. We can be very critical of human rights violations how the, the collapse of democracy in countries like Turkey, Russia, Iran, but at the same time, you know, connect with the people. It's essential to me. Also, I find very important, as you said, to rebuild a civil society. Just to give you an example, why we need, you know, women's solidarity. For instance, a couple of months ago, they tried to pass a law in Turkey. And, and when you go to Turkey, you will see there are lots of women in many fields, very strong women, academia, media, medicine, but there's one field in which women are almost non-existent, and that's politics. Local, regional, national level, the number of women is very limited, especially as you go up the ladder, the political ladder. So decision makers are mostly conservative, patriarchal men. That makes, unfortunately, a big difference in a very bad way. I'll give you an example. They tried to pass this law, and they came up with a suggestion that they should reduce the sentence of rapists, of minors, underage girls, if the rapists agreed to marry their victims. Because according to their weird mentality, if the, if the rapist is agreeing to marry, he's doing a favor to the family and saving the family honor. That is the mentality we have to fight against because it never occurs to them to see things through the eyes of the victims. Uh, and that is why women need that kind of solidarity. It doesn't matter how they dress up, whether they wear a headscarf, whether they, you know, whether a miniskirt. We have so much in common. In a country where there's sexual harassment on the streets, how can women not join forces? So those are the things that I want to talk about. But for me, it's also essential to say, of course, patriarchy makes women unhappy, but I sincerely believe it also makes men unhappy, particularly young men, young men who do not conform, you know, this given description of masculinity for whatever reason, because they're creative, because they have their own dreams, they also find it very difficult and there's a lot of pressure on young men. So we need to talk about masculinity, the construction of masculinity, 
and we need to see as mothers our own role in the construction of masculinity. From day one, we treat our sons differently than our daughters. We treat them as the little sultans in the family, you know, and that's not good for them either. So, and in many honor killings, for one of my novels, I, I, I did a lot of research about cases of honor killings and honor crimes, and in so many cases, so many young men have also been encouraged by the big matriarch in the family. So there are very difficult conversations we need to talk about. All I'm trying to say is I long for a kind of women's movement that unites women from very different backgrounds, but also goes hand in hand with minorities, with LGBT rights, and also invites men into the conversation and doesn't exclude them. How, how possible is that in your mind in in the Turkey of, I don't know, the next 10 to 15 years, because the Turkey of today, there doesn't feel as though there is a public space for that. The public space has changed a lot, and I'm, and I'm sad to say the social fabric has changed a lot. And that's what happens, I think, when authoritarianism settles in. So first, it starts with populism, majoritarianism, and then once that is there, the slide into authoritarianism is quite fast. I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking if there's a ballot box and relatively regular elections in a country, that doesn't necessarily mean that country is a democracy. You know, For a democracy to exist and to survive, in addition to the ballot box, we need separation of powers. If it, all the power is concentrated in one hand, that is not a democracy. You need rule of law. You need definitely a free, diverse media, definitely independent academia. It's not a coincidence that in Hungary, Viktor Orban is now attacking universities. You know, universities are incredibly important. You need definitely women's rights, minority rights, together with all those components as a democracy can survive. So what happened in Turkey is we have lost all those components and the only thing that remained was the ballot box. But that's not a democracy, that's majoritarianism. And from majoritarianism, we went into authoritarianism. And that, after a while, affects the entire fabric of the, of the society. Even daily life, there's a lot of anger you know, we became an angry society. But that said, Turkey is an incredibly complex country, you know. It's really unique in many ways, as I'm sure you've, you've seen when you looked at the uh, results of the local elections. Um, it's, it's just fascinating that half of the society continues not to vote for the, for the government in a country where the entire media is dominated by one voice, where the entire social media is regulated. So it's, it says something to us about the complexity of the, of the Turkish civil society. I, I want to talk a little bit about language because it, it, there is a, a, a connection with the, the way in which Turkey has modernized since it became a republic in, in 1923 and, and lost the Ottoman Empire in, in the most spectacular fashion by backing the wrong side in the First World War. Um, I, I just wonder about, the, the because you write in Turkish and in English, and in fact, I think in your early novels you wrote the novel in English, but you didn't want to have a translator translate it into Turkish, and you wrote the novel yourself, again, in Turkish. And, and I'm really interested in, 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 it, in the context of the modernizing of Turkey, because the language has changed as well. It, it used to be a language that was 
plural in that there were lots of um, Arabic words, there were Persian sure. words, and, and that doesn't exist as much anymore. Just explain yeah. why that matters to you. Yeah. Well, uh, earlier you asked me about faith, right, and, and doubt. It's, it's very similar because in Turkey I find it difficult to have nuanced conversations. Like, are you there? Are you here? Are you religious? Are you, are you the opposite? Um, as if you can't have you know, a, a much more nuanced approach. I'm not a religious person at all. I am not a believer. I have too much doubt to be a believer. But I'm someone who's interested in faith. And actually, I find it interesting that faith and doubt can talk to each other. Can they talk to each other? So you know, maybe agnostics or mystics who are a bit of misfits. I'm interested in those, in those combinations. And like, you're hugely interested in spirituality. I mean, I'm interested 40 in spirituality. Rules of Love is all about yeah. engagement with spirituality. Yeah, which is, to me, very different than organized religions, because organized religions make a distinction between us versus them. And they think often that us is closer to God than them. But in spirituality, there's no such thing. It's a very individual path. The reason I mention it is same with language debates in Turkey. If you're a modernist, you are expected not to have any interest whatsoever in old words. And if you're a conservative, then you conserve old words, but you wouldn't have a progressive mindset. I never understood these dualities. You can be a progressive-minded individual. You can be a liberal. Or, or, or on the left, and you can still be very interested in old words and new words and all words, because we need all of them. So as a writer, I always wanted to keep those nuances and trying to carve out a space for myself out of these dualities. And I'll give you an example. If you look at an Ottoman Turkish dictionary, it is quite thick. But if you look at a modern Turkish dictionary, it's almost half the size around 45% of our vocabulary is gone, if not more. So as a Turkish writer, I can say yellow in Turkish, I can say red in Turkish, but the shades in between, I have no words for them because they used to come from Persian. And when we Turkified our language, those words were taken out. And I never understood that. As you know, the Ottoman Empire, because it was a multi-ethnic empire, the language, as you said, it came from, I mean, the syntax was Turkish, but the vocabulary came from Arabic, Persian, also Ladino, many Ladino words, Armenian words, Greek words, Kurdish words. I like that multiplicity. And when I hear people speak English and they say chutzpah, and they say kismet, and nobody stops them and says, you know, wait a minute, that's a Jewish word, let's take it out. Kismet is an Arabic word, let's take it out of the English language. They're all welcome because they're part of the organic journey of the English language. Just like that, we had an organic journey. So even when I was writing in Turkish primarily, I was always trying to expand the limits of daily life Turkish. I, I want to go back to the, um, the I word and, and being a public intellectual, because when you talked about the bastard of Istanbul and the trial that you, that you faced, I, I wonder if you accept that however difficult that period was in your life, it was, on the face of it, a clear manifestation that novels bother people in power that there is something about the grit that a novel or a story can create that upsets people in positions of power. So in that context, it's not something that is done in isolation. It's designed to make an impact. And in that case, it did make a huge impact. You know, I, uh, in Edinburgh a few years ago, I had an event with Nicola Sturgeon 
and she was talking about passionately books and novels. She's and a big reader. She's a big reader. Really, I had a cultural shock. I'm not used to seeing politicians, you know, prime ministers, first ministers speaking about novels. In my country, they don't read. I don't think they read novels at all, but they approach literature with suspicion, you know, always with suspicion, trying to see what mischief is there. It should be regulated, controlled. So the approach is always top-down. Not They don't approach literature as readers. That is one of the biggest differences. But that said, I think my experience, there's a difference between public space and how people behave in their personal lives. I have many readers in Turkey who are, to be honest, quite xenophobic. If you ask their opinions, particularly about minorities, about Kurds, Armenians, Greeks, Jews, because these are the main minorities in Turkey, they might tell you biased things. They might use quite stereotypical you know, words. But then, because this is the only narrative they have heard at home, at school, in their neighborhood, but then they come and they say, you know, I read your book, and this is the character that I love the most, and maybe the character they're talking about is Greek or Armenian or Jewish. Similarly, I have many homophobic readers, because this is the main narrative we hear all the time in Turkey. But then they come and they say, why did you make this character suffer? You know, that was my favorite person in this book. And maybe their favorite person was, was gay or transsexual. So I really wondered about this, thought about this a lot. And I think when we are in the company of other people, we become a bit more judgmental. The energy, energy is contagious. If my best friend is biased towards a particular minority, it, tries to, it starts to affect my own views about that particular minority. And we're always in the company of other people. Our entire energy is constantly seeping outward. We're always in a hurry, right? But when you read a novel, you slow down and you go within. There are no more friends or you know, people distracting you. You just make a journey inside. And I think when we are alone, we are a little bit more ready to connect with the other, just a little bit more open-minded, a bit more open-hearted. That is why I think it's not a coincidence that totalitarianism, all forms of authoritarian ideologies, they require collectivistic identities like crowds, chanting, masses acting at the same time, synchronized energy. They erase individuality. And I think what the art of storytelling does is to restore our individuality, not in a selfish way, but in such a way that we connect with the rest of humanity, that I can understand, in fact, the other is me. You know, it's not that different than me. That is why I think storytelling is very, very powerful. What a perfect way on which to end. Um, thank, it is a brilliant novel. Um, thank you so much, Alif. Thank I you. always enjoy really um, talking to you. I always feel I learn something new every single time, and, and I hope that you've enjoyed listening to Alif as much as I've enjoyed speaking to her. Please. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on.